0: Welcome to episode 20 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Before we get to the episode, I'd like to offer you some information on a training opportunity. If you'd like to spend a few days studying the art of firefighting and perfecting your craft, the first annual Smoke is Showing conference will take place at the John D. Bradley Convention Center in beautiful Chatham, Ken, Ontario, June 5 7, 2020. They'll be providing lectures and hands on training, and you can find out all you need to know to register on their website, smokeashowing.com, and follow them on their Facebook and Instagram pages. They've graciously asked me to take part, and I hope to finally meet many of you there. Denzel Washington has been quoted as teaching his children, do what you gotta do so you can do what you wanna do. It's arguable that a sense of responsibility and appreciation of delayed gratification are crucial core values to instill in children at any age. Regardless of your socioeconomic status, there will always be a measure of have to do's in your life. And even if you coddle and protect your children from the world, there will inevitably be a measure in theirs. Experiencing a healthy and sustainable balance of challenge and reward in our youth, with guidance and support on how to put things in perspective and context, allows for the development of what we most often refer to as a work ethic. My guest this episode was provided with a structure that offered experiences that he to preparing him for a career in the fire service, even though it wasn't a set goal from the outset. The positive impact of these lessons in his life are some of the things he dialogues about with his peers in his roles as a colleague and instructor. We delve into this and many other formative moments, from him finding himself in the middle of a hostage situation to kangaroo court and had the pet grow. It's my pleasure to offer our conversation. Here's Nathan Pocock. Hey, Nathan. Hey, how's it going? Good, man. I'm glad we're finally able to have a chat. We've uh, texted back and forth a little bit.
1: Yeah, good. Let me get the voices going.
0: So let's start with where you grew up and your family structure.
1: Grew up sort of all over BC here, but I was born originally in Manitoba, Grandview, Manitoba. My parents immigrated in uh, 86 from England. Started there, and then uh, part of the term of the immigration was my dad had to work somewhere nobody else would, so Grandview, Manitoba it was. They'd call it a sentence, three-year sentence. We, uh, We moved to the West Coast pretty promptly, and we started on Vancouver, a little town called Gold River. And then from there, we sort of bounced around to Chilliwack and on the mainland and then back over to the islands and South Island where I spent most of my teenage years then over on the South Island growing up around there and lived on the South Island right up until uh, coming to the mainland here to work for the city. One brother, four years older than me, he works at Cranbrook over on the eastern side of the province. He's the uh, head arborist their town there and dad's uh, doctor. He just finished his general practice. He's now just an addiction specialist running. Addiction clinics in Victoria and Souk. Got family service history, both sides, both my grandparents. My paternal side is English. There's my grandfather on the paternal side was a British Navy. Served there, ran away when he was a young kid from home and lied about his age to get on the boat and get away from his house, essentially. Spent his whole years on the ships and going around the Korean War and a few others. And then on my maternal side, he was U.S. Air Force, so the family had come across originally Ukrainian, but he grew up on a chicken farm in Sacramento, California, just outside of it. It's also had some orange tree orchards, but uh, ended up U.S. Air Force as an Air Force mechanic. And he then was back in England working on a green in common during the Cold War, which is where he met my grandmother. And uh, once they, they hooked up there, my mom and my uncle were army brats. Sort of flying around, but anytime my granddad got stationed anywhere, they would all stay in England the whole time with the rest of their family. So my mom and my uncle I all grew up in England where my granddad would come back for deployments in the States and then go back out to different places throughout, up to Alaska and different areas. He was actually in charge of the fire truck maintenance too on all the Air Force bases. And they ended up going to Spain with one of them too. They drove it all the way from England down to Spain with a couple of guys to drop off a couple of guns for the Spanish military forces. Some sort of joint agreement between the U.S. and them. So that was kind of the only fire department connection I knew of there. But as we sort of talked about before, was uh, turned out that the family history we didn't really know anything besides that until they moved back in '70. Three, my granddad retired they moved back to england full-time and it wasn't until my parents moved over in 86 that my grandparents moved back to the state in 87 to washington state when my parents got here and got told they had to go to manitoba i guess my mom cried all the way driving from seattle the minute i got over the rockies she cried the whole entire way when she saw the planes for the next three days and uh worried about being away from family and everything. They get to grandview manitoba and before they know it, they find out there's voices which is my mom's maiden name, surrounding them. It turns out they're all relatives of ours. That's where my grandfather's family all started when they came across in the Ukraine, who knows how long ago. And they lived on a border town, is the story. That uh, they lived on a border town, and when the 49th parallel was kind of drawn, they were sort of right on the cusp, and people were sort of told go north or go south. Most people, I guess, assume they were Canadian in this town, so. Most of the family went north except for it would have been my great-great-grandfather who had south. He holds the same name, Walter, as my grandfather does. And he made his way across through the Midwest all the way over to California where eventually my great-grandfather settled down and had my grandfather's family. So where this all ties in, when I was helping my grandfather and grandma move recently, they're moving out of there first house they bought when they moved back to the states to a new place now because they're 87 and 85 now so they uh, moved into a smaller place we're helping clear everything out and we find all these old pictures of winnipeg fire department back in 1908 and 1890 asked my granddad about it he knows nothing about the connection he's just been sitting in his attic for 30 years So it was actually my wife who started looking into it better than me. Google's supposed to be easy, but somehow I'll Google the same thing as her and I find nothing and she finds everything. I don't know how it works, (laughs) but she started finding records of the Boyce family Cartwright company and they were actually building and manufacturing fire carts for the Winnipeg Fire Department throughout that time period and actually helped outfit and build some of the first motorized fire apparatus for the Winnipeg Fire Department. So that was kind of a cool connection that I didn't know existed. for My family that goes way back and was obviously lost for a long time, but you can still see in all the Winnipeg records all the tenders that went out and how they were won and what they were getting paid for, all these carts and everything, all from the Boyce rate Company. So it's pretty cool that way.
0: Is there any memorabilia or anything like that that you've looked into if you could collect or find from that time?
1: Nothing that I can find. No, all I've got is essentially like the pay stubs or the tenders and these pictures that came out of the attic of just a group of firemen all on their hose carts out in front of the Winnipeg fire halls with no description or anything on them. It was quite the little search. And I still don't 100% know it's, it was my boy's family. It could still be somebody else's. It's just we're trying to connect the dots on what's what, knowing that there is so much family there. And these happen to be in my granddad's attic is kind of where we're putting it all together.
0: Yeah, it seems to be too much of a coincidence to be a different name.
1: Yeah, exactly, right? And Boyce is a big name around that area now. Like my parents found out when they made the drive across and thought they were all alone. Turns out the Boyces are everywhere out there. So that's sort of my history there and where that all comes from. And my paternal side, it's not a lot known there just because of some crazy family history there. My grandfather and his brother were technically illegitimate children because they were born out of wedlock. And their parents couldn't get married because it turned out my great-granddad on that side was already married once before, but disappeared. And when he fell off a ladder one day cleaning windows, he went to the hospital. And the story is that they called his next to King, and it was his wife that he'd run away from however many years ago. Wow. showed up at his bedside, asking for child support for the past however many years and so it's not a lot of history over there it's pretty hard to find anything that goes back huh?
0: relationships were as complicated back then as they are now
1: oh yeah my great-grandmother who he had not married the biological mother of my grandfather and my great-uncle ended up marrying another man after all that but my great-grandfather still lived with them so it gets even more complicated as you go along <laughs> <laughs> if only reality (laughs)
0: television uh existed back then
1: oh yeah exactly it's just the way it was but uh yeah so that's why it probably helped with him uh getting out of the house as as he did to lie to get into the navy
0: but speaking of family history of farming you mentioned growing up you had a real connection to nature and forests and you still do
1: yeah we always lived out in the woods or on the edge of town or Somewhere like that. I mean, even when we lived in Chilliwack, that was probably the biggest town we ever lived in as kids. But we were on the edge of town, and we had two and a half acres, which two acres of which was just woods on the side of a mountain. And that's where me and my brother and our friends pretty much lived. We went camping all the time as kids. Once I was a teenager, it was surfing on the west coast of the island and getting out hiking and overnight backpacking trips and sometimes it was just a release right and i'd go by myself as a way to get out and just experience the world and have a break from it all right and it gives you a challenge to push yourself too i think i like that about the nature too one of my biggest fears i always had when i uh, took the job and moved to the city was well i didn't have kids yet but that was always a thought me and my wife same thing my wife grew up in farm country in england that's where she's from that's where I met her, actually, when I, I lived over there first, and and we can get that in a bit, but uh, we're terrified of our kids being city kids, and you asked me what a city kid is, I, I couldn't give you a definition, but we're terrified our kids are going to be one. <laughs> nice. And, uh, <laughs> and we make sure, when we get time off, it's it's out in the woods, and when we walk my daughter to school, we walk through the woods, and they're encouraged to be off the path and climb the trees, and it's part of it. It gives you challenges. It lets you challenge yourself, too, going out fishing and building shelters, and starting fires and that's always been a, a big thing for us for sure.
0: Your parents really gave you free rain growing up. What age did that start at and how was the structure?
1: Free rain, I think free rain almost always existed. So don't want to make it sound neglectful. It certainly weren't that, but they let us do our thing, one hundred percent. You wanted to go to your friend's house, you jumped on the bike and went, there was no needing to check in or whatever and call them when you got there or when you need picking up or you just bike back when you were or call to say you're gonna stay over or yeah, if you want to go outside and play in the woods, well how about or you're out of the house and you're giving them a break. So we had a big house when we lived there. Uh, and the basement was unfinished. And I remember probably when my brother was about fourteen, we finished the basement and the whole half of the basement was made into just a bedroom. It had its own entrance and everything. It was pretty much as long as you don't make so much noise that we can't hear on the top two floors, you do whatever you want down here. Come and go as you please. And then once my brother was off to university, that was my room. Same rules applied.
0: As long as the police don't show up at the door, then you're okay.
1: Yeah, don't do anything stupid and we'll be all right. I mean, for me, I was always doing sports or something as well. So my free time was usually spent just eating or sleeping. But we would get out and do what we could and we definitely had a hands-off approach and only intervene if needed kind of thing growing up
0: you mentioned sports how did you get involved with rowing
1: being an english family my father actually was rowing he rode on the thames all through England. he raced in henley the coxswain back in the day and he rode through uh university as well and when we were living in chilewack at that time i was playing soccer and ice hockey. And then I started rowing as well at that point. There was a year there when my poor mom, she was driving me from early morning hockey practice and I'd be getting changed in the car to get on the soccer pitch and then we'd go home for lunch and that was off to the bullhouse. And after the end of that year, I'd grown out of my hockey gear and she just said, look, you got to pick one thing. <laughs> enough, enough. <laughs> I'm surprised she put up with it as long as she did. But my dad had started... Rowing as a masters, or nice way of saying senior division, but as a masters at a local club that was just outside Chalk so on this little stretch of Salou, just had a couple of tin boat houses, and he was rowing out there just because he'd enjoyed it in his youth, and it's a darn good workout. They had a high school team at that point that was racing out of there, and they didn't have a coxswain. So coxswains have to be 110 pounds and under for men's. And 100 pounds for women's. And I was still small enough or young enough to be that light. So I got brought along and asked if I wanted to start coxing. So I started coxing for a high school crew when I was in elementary school. And I went around with them and I would roll on my days off from coxing for them at that point in time. And I was going to all the regattas with them, racing with them, which was pretty cool. I mean, you're, you're a young elementary school kid and you got 10 high school kids that you're going to. These regattas with and my parents wouldn't come to those necessarily all the time. So here I am, whatever age, on these trips for three, four days with this group of high school kids. And I'm in charge of the race from the when we're out on the water.
0: So, and they were mixed clubs you mentioned
1: for that time period. We had a girls' four. They were great. Actually, they they won pretty much everything when I was collecting them. They were the powerhouse of a crew, which is pretty amazing considering the boathouse we were coming from. Boys' club. They were good guys. And they didn't mix at that point. But when I started getting too big, inevitably getting over 110 pounds didn't take me very long, I started racing. And like I say, it was such a small club. So you can row anywhere from eight people in a boat down to singles. And we just did not have eight people. We didn't have eight boys to row in, in men's eights. We didn't have eight women to row in women's eights. We didn't have eight juniors and eight seniors. So we ended up racing everything. So we would enter... Uh, an eight but we'd have four girls four guys and maybe one of the guys was 17 years old so well now we have to race in the senior men's category because that's what we're doing so we just started doing that at all the different gattas it was great my dad would always be wheeling and dealing uh with other clubs to borrow this person or that person let's put an eight in with three of your guys and four of ours and then we'll grab one one person from this place and okay now we can race the eights. I spent a lot of time doing that, which was fantastic for me. And I got every summer when school ended, I'd have a different club I could go row with or, or train with because of all these connections through the regatta season that, that were created through these different boats. Yeah, we ended up racing all kinds of different things with, with different squads. There was a core group of us. there's about three of us in the end on the guy side. And there was a core group of about four to five girls through my time in that club. That was the Fraser Valley Rowing Club. And it was how boarding school came along was my grade 10 year. One guy I'd been rowing doubles and pairs with the year before was graduated. So he was no longer racing anymore in the high school division. So I did a lot of singles rowing and I ended up going to nationals that year in singles after winning some of the provincial regattas. And while I was at nationals, I'd been rowing and training at these different places with the wheeling and dealing with some of the guys from local boarding schools, especially when they did their summer racing and row racing club instead of school. From there, I guess my parents got approached by a couple of these schools to say, hey, if you want your son to get some good crew time, we have positions at our schools for him to come fill kind of thing. So they got given a few options. Essentially, they came to me and said, there's three different choices you can go to, St. George's, Brentwood, or Seanigan, what's your thoughts? And uh, the idea of it was over the moon for me, I I didn't even hesitate. I always find it funny when people talk about uh, how big and terrible boarding schools are. I was excited for the chance to go, and honestly, there's some of the fondest memories I've had. St. George's was a no for me for the fact that it was very few boarders I actually live at the school campus at the time. It was only 10% for boarders, 90% for students. Brentwood and Shawnigan we had regattas there every year. So I'd stayed at them. I knew the campuses and ultimately it ended up coming down to, I liked and Shonigan. Shonigan was a great campus and I already knew the coach a little bit that was coaching their senior men's squad at the time. And I was moving into the senior squad for grade 11 and 12. So that sort of swayed my decision that way. So that's where I ended up, wrote the entries, exams, and everything, and and started school there, which, like I say, was was fantastic. Definitely changed the uh, training regime. It's a lot more water time when you can just walk to the boathouse and you're there seven days a week, which was great. We had a great group of guys there, really good squad.
0: You said you were training 13 times a week.
1: Yeah, when we got into it. You had a very strict schedule there. Even Saturdays were planned out for you. We started getting different schedules to other people because we'd have to be on the water before. Or maybe breakfast would have to be held back a bit for us so we could go eat a bit later than everybody else before getting to class. And you're supposed to do in senior year it was after your classes, Monday, Wednesday and Friday was sport. But after your classes on Tuesday and Thursday was your art. We stopped even doing the art in the end because we were just training. And then weekends was same thing go 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 sundays was our day off where we'd only go down to the boathouse to do 90 minute bird pieces so that was our day off during that time and then spring break we'd go and get two and a half weeks or something for spring break we would go for a week and we'd come back to school as the only people on campus and then we'd do three days for that last week and a bit of spring break get ready for racing season coming up around the corner wow It was pretty relentless, yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And you were saying you think it prepared you for the fire service in a lot of ways without you knowing it.
1: Boarding school itself, I think, did. I mean, when you put kids in that situation, somebody's got to end up taking responsibility. Quite simply, we had 300 acres of campus, but 400 students. And the number of faculty members that were actually on campus, not during school hours, diminished to like a 1 to 30 ratio or whatever it was. So a lot of onus was put on your seniors, in particular your grade 12s, to manage everybody else. And you're in a house with 40, 50 other guys or girls if you're in a girl's house that you have to get along with. And if you don't get along with them, you have to find a way to live with that because guess what? They're not going anywhere neither are you. So a lot of those things, I think, definitely transitioned over to the fire service for me, especially uh, when you start looking at that stuff it's a life skill right that can be missed you don't have to like everyone and they certainly don't have to like you but when push comes to up you still gotta find a way to get the job done
0: and the teachers look to the grade 12 students to help out
1: yeah saturdays was your sort of make sure everything's clean day your room you had to be in your number one dress we usually just wear polos and they could be whatever color you wanted and then your shoes and pants or socks and shorts or whatever you're wearing, depending on the weather. But on Saturdays, you had to wear your number ones, which is probably your stereotypical version of what people think boarding school looks like, where you had your blazer and tie, and the girls wore their dresses, and we had our dress pants and polished shoes. and It was much more your stereotypical image of what people probably think. And on Saturdays, you'd have chapel. So first, you'd have your room inspected by a house director, and a grade 12 student, and I'd be going with them. And then you would be off to chapel, which was essentially just a school assembly, but we sung some hymns in the middle. And it was a way just to tell everybody what happened this week, what's happening next week. You'd have lunch, and then you'd be off to sport on Saturdays. Then the rest of the day wasn't planned out. But like I say, even on Saturdays, it's planned out. But if any punishments were delivered, it was, Pretty much up to the grade 12s to see them through and supervise them. And a lot of times it was up to the grade 12s to even dictate what the punishment was going to be for things, especially in our house. Our house director was ex military before I became a teacher and everything. And he was very much about us running it. And if you decided to put a punishment through, then that was on you. And that was your time. I remember having to do that in grade 12 one time. We had a guy. He wasn't doing his homework and stuff. So this is what it falls down to. And I was one of our house prefects for grade 12. And I was sort of asked, you know, go deal with this. Plus, he hasn't been keeping his room tidy on Saturdays. There's a number of things. So I had to go deal with it. And he was kind of annoying me. And so so I said, well, I don't know. He's not doing the stuff we want me to do. And it was, well, it's not up to me. It's up to you. But whatever you do, you're doing it. We ended up running laps around the pond, but I had to be there running laps with them because that was my choice. That's what the punishment was going to be. And that was it. The house director wanted nothing to do with it at that point. It was, you pick what you want to do and you do it. But as long as it happens, I don't care. And it was just stuff like that. Just different punishments. I remember 10 track muds there's stairs one time. I had to run back to my dorm before running up to class and didn't have time to clean it up. Well, by the time I got back, house director was furious. So I cleaned the stairs with a toothbrush for the next three nights. But <laughs> 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 it was just the way it worked. We had the different Wilbur duty that was there. That uh, You just had your, your free time taken away. It was an old janitor and landscaper. So that's what you did. You got put on Wilbur duty. Your free time was taken away, and you would do landscaping duties throughout the 300 acres of campus. And if they had no duties to do, it would be move a pile of sand from point A to point B. And once it's all at point B, move it back to point A. Stuff like
0: that. <laughs> and mom and dad aren't dropping in to criticize the professors of why you're being treated this way.
1: Oh, not at all. They don't even know what's going on unless you told them. I mean, my parents, would, they would have said good on them. I mean, they would have encouraged it, right? Because it's fair. It was never unfair. I and mean, I never saw it as unfair. I thought it was
0: great made sense, it is what it is. You have consequences for your actions. And what university did you transition to?
1: I ended up going from there, I ended up going to UVic, University of Victoria to study biology. My initial plan coming out of high school was following my father's footsteps for sure. But like all these things with our school system, they push you and push you and push you. University's a must. Well, as life turns out, university wasn't my thing in the end, but I followed the footsteps. UVic had the best rowing team at that time. Uh, I knew I didn't want to go to the States, which a lot of my crew ended up in the States. So UVic it was. Started off like anybody does, I think, for their first year in university. It's just a bit of a shock to the system. Did my classes. I was in biology, physics, chemistry, doing the labs on top of all those as well, and your calculus and everything else. And it was my third semester, so year two, first semester in year two. I remember walking into a class one day and just thinking, compliant or paying this person to make me do this much work when through the last several summers and on different days off I would be working construction making money and the minute I went on Christmas break from that semester I kind of just said to myself well if I'm thinking that there's no point in me being here because I ain't getting the most out of it so I left university at that point and went to construction full-time enrolled with the local college Camosun College where my ITA and everything to get rolling on my apprenticeship. Started working full-time with the guy I'd uh, been working with on my summers and everything with construction. And slowly from there, I branched out, started picking up my own jobs, working for different people and subcontracting to different sites, bigger sites. And that's when I eventually transitioned over into the fire service. It was been doing construction quite a while. Started realizing I love the hands-on. I loved the challenges of learning. I loved that every day was a bit different. But I didn't have that sense of give back that I wanted. And they were just driving back into a place where I live in, East Sook, Will Town, and seeing the Volunteers Wanted sign. I thought, well, you know what? I'll give that a go. And that was the start of the end, really. <laughs> 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 I gave them a ring, and I remember when I decided I'm going to do something, I'm all in. I can't do anything halfway. I remember just being anxious for weeks about well, when's this happening? When's this happening? I've called them. What's going on? What's going on? And then now looking back, I mean, what it was, I mean, small volunteer fire department, there was just nobody there. Nobody's there to answer the phone, check the voicemails. So it wasn't for about a week and a bit. And on a Thursday night, I finally got the phone call back. That was our practice night and uh, invited down to come see what it was and, and see if I'd be a fit kind of thing. And yeah, I was down the Thursday after that and, and, and haven't looked back. I'm not one of these guys that's had this fire department legacy forever. And the fire culture in England, both with the fire department itself and the public, is completely different than here. My parents, they're English. As a kid, my parents wouldn't point out, hey, look, a fire truck. That's not something that happened. So there's never been something in my mind.
0: Is the job seen differently? Is that what you're... It's seen very differently. Yeah.
1: They don't get given the same credit we do at all. In the public eye, they don't get put on it. I don't want to say pedestal, but, I mean, that's what it is. But They don't get put on a pedestal like we do.
0: Is it common with blue-collar jobs in general? Over there, ambulance has the reality TV show.
1: Police has the reality TV show, but fire doesn't.
0: Interesting. Yeah,
1: so it's very much a different culture. And like I say, growing up, there was never the, hey, look, sirens, hey, look, lights, Uh, look at that big fire truck. That was never a thing. I mean, I went to that first practice night. I didn't know a thing. I knew, but I never knew that it was actually like a career choice either.
0: So given that that was the opinion from back in England, yeah, what was your parents' reaction to stopping university, getting into construction, and then deciding on the fire service?
1: <laughs> you can imagine. Uh, my dad never really wanted to talk about it. Hands off, right? They would support if I needed help, but not getting involved kind of thing, right? My mom would let out the occasional worry comments about what'd you go to boarding school for if you're just going to be a carpenter and (laughs) and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. When I started getting into the fire service, she was very worried about it. When I found out it could be a career, and I loved it already that much, that, okay, hey, you're going to pay me for this? Right on. I mean, I was already doing 20 to 30 hours a week at the volunteer hall anyways. You're going to pay me for this. Fantastic. Um, She was definitely worried. Definitely had a few comments. My uncle had a good friend that is a deputy chief down in Monroe County in Washington State, and he was up on a fishing trip in the state at my parents' place, and I wasn't there. They ended up talking to him about it, I guess, and saw how he talked about it as a career deputy chief down there. And uh, I think that kind of settled him down a little bit. Okay, this is a real thing. Yes, it's something that people actually do. But they didn't immediately go, oh, great career choice.
0: And are they seeing it differently now that you've been in a few years? Yes.
1: Yeah, I think so, for sure. I think they also see it's definitely a great job for providing for a family and everything else. So they can't deny any of that. And obviously the passion and everything that comes with it is all good. So, yeah, I think they see it differently now. We don't have a lot of big heart-to-hearts in my family. So I don't know if I asked them if their grandkids ever thought about doing it one day. I don't know what their reaction
0: would be. But, yeah. (laughs) What was the process like to build your resume to apply to full-time departments?
1: Like I said, it kind of happened. I started volunteering. I spent three years there in the end before I got hired. And probably about five or six months in, I decided, wait a minute. This is me. This is what I'm doing. At that point, my wife was already living with me. But due to immigration troubles, that were ridiculous. She couldn't work. She couldn't do anything else. So... Here I am now, 19, 20 years old, trying to make this work for the both of us while seeking down this career. So, fire school was never really an option, just couldn't afford it. So, I knew I had to go through the volunteer department. So, our training officer at the time, and the year I left there was the 25th anniversary. So, pretty new department. Fire hall itself was originally built by the locals, they built it themselves and stuck this old, beautiful truck in there that i actually ended up getting married in the back of as their first line engine i believe it was a 52 international with a portable pump in the back it's just a big pickup truck with everything stuck in the back we had one guy who could certify you in your modules there was the nine modules to your 1001 level one and two but he could only certify you in seven of the nine but he was our guy there was one other guy that had recently joined up that had gone and done his 1001 in texas and he was hoping to go career at some point. And I just latched onto them like crazy. So the guy at Dennis Ten One, I used to meet with him on Wednesday nights to do stuff there. I'd do our Thursday nights at the fire hall and then I'd self study like crazy. I called up the local fire halls in our mutual aid districts next to us, found out their practice nights, I'd go practice with them. And then whenever I felt ready for the next module, I'd phone up my buddy that had the seven modules he could do, and it was a case of his favorite beer, and he'd come down to the fire hall and proctor my examination. And I would just chip away at him, chip away at him, chip away at him. Um, went and got my live fire as soon as I could. The department sent me away from that. And the last one I needed was hazmat. And I spent a long time trying to get my hazmat ops. No courses were coming up, and the department didn't have the money for it. Eventually, I found a course myself that was happening on Salt Spring Island, which is a small island off of Vancouver Island, in between the mainland and here. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to sign up for it. I'll pay my own way, and I need to get this done. I want to start applying. So that course was in early summer. And off I go. I've got this big plan. I'm going to save money. I had a friend who owns some acreage on the island. I was just going to camp on his land, but I took this course and at the Salt Spring Fire Hall, he told me there'd be a windstorm there, and his driveway was all covered in trees. So I was, okay, got the chainsaw and everything in the back. Going to spend the first day just clearing the driveway, and then I'll camp there for this four-day course. It turned out to be totally different, of course. I got on the ferry and uh, noticed some guys from one of the neighboring fire halls on the ferry as well, and they saw me. Hey, how's it going? We start talking. They're asking me what I've got all this chainsaw and stuff in. What am I doing? And I let them know. And it turns out it's actually a whole training weekend that's happening. And everyone goes there and rents camping space on this farm. There's about eight or nine courses happening this whole weekend. So they had a good laugh at the site, and I was just going to boon it for a bit. And luckily enough, I had that good relationship with them, which they allowed me to come along. They actually made a phone call to their chief. Their chief actually paid for my campsite for the whole weekend to camp with them at their location on the farm and register me into that whole space. So that was good. Yeah, got my 10-01 finished that month. Applications went out August, September. Five different apartments. Right after that, so August 2010. Applications have all started going out August, September 2010. And my first day of work here in Vancouver was April 4th, 2011. So. It was a fast process.
0: Before we move on to that, touch back on the volunteers in Rounders. Oh yeah,
1: Rounders Night. Rounders Night's fantastic. They don't do it anymore. It's just super depressing, actually. Rounders Night was great. So, the South Island departments, they have a massive regional district, known as the CRD, Capital Regional District, that maintains 13 different municipalities, for lack of a better word, in the Greater Victoria area, with pockets of municipal fire departments in between, but Every Thursday night was everyone's practice night on the South Island. The last Thursday before Christmas was tradition to do what we called Rounders Night. So you'd take your department and everyone would split into a home team and a away team. And the home team's job was to stay at the fire hall and throw a party, but to be the designated responders for the district. So you'd stay sober, you'd be ready to go for any calls in the district, but you were hosting a party. And the away team, which every other department had too, all piled into a van and you drove around to every single fire hall you could in that night to the different parties they were hosting. It was fantastic. You'd get to meet all the different people from all the different departments, meet their new people. You get to see their trucks. You have a chat. People would have different things going, different ones. Games of pool would be going on. And all the doors closed at midnight. Sort of the rule was that doors close at midnight, but you can't kick anybody out. So everybody kind of had a fire hall that they were going to get to at 11.59 and just drag it out for as long as they could. So it was great. One by one, unfortunately, departments started to pull out of it. And I don't know what year it happened, but it was after I left that everybody stopped doing it, which is too bad. All those municipalities over there are so small that you have to rely on everybody else anyways. For any call that becomes any size, mutual rights coming. They have to. You don't have the resources. So it was a great way to get to know who was
0: actually showing up
1: on way more of a personal level than doing a joint training exercise one
0: weekend. Another piece of community lost.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally. The halls themselves still do their things, but uh, yeah, definitely lost something for sure by getting rid of that. It was something everybody looked forward to.
0: So once you get on, what was your recruit class experience like?
1: Recruit class was good. I liked recruit class. It was everything I expected it to be. I know some people talk, wow, we we call our recruit class Chess Street. So if I start saying Chess Street, forget to say recruit class. That's what I mean, because that's the street in which the training center is on. I love Chess Street. I look back with nothing but fond memories. I talk to some people, oh, Chess Street. I never go back to Chess Street. I hated that place. It was heaven for me. Put on your gear and pull hose all day. Fantastic. Same again tomorrow. Great. It was fun. We had the typical stuff, you know, everyone's yelling at you, drop something, you make a mistake. Our TO's favorite thing when we made mistakes was you stood there and watched the rest of your class get punished. That was to sort of drill it in a little harder. But I expected to be yelled at. They were malicious. It was all just part of the experience as far as I was concerned. Our chest treats changed a lot. When I was there, we only did four weeks, three weeks of fire, and one week of EMS to get us all on the same page. Now I think we're up to eight weeks for our new recruits, and they don't. Down maybe two days, VMS, and not eight weeks. The rest is all fire based. We're trying to add even more time to that as we move forward, but uh, we're in a massive hiring process right now, so I think that's also limiting how much time they can actually tack on to those classes. But it was good. There's 20 of us that started all together. We were a young class. I remember being told that our average hiring age is 28, our average age of our class is 25. We had a lot of younger guys, we all hustled ones at their highest form of passion for the job, too, right? Nobody's got jaded or upset or anything yet. Nobody's calling it work yet, which is fantastic. You walked in every day and everybody's still realizing the fact they've achieved their dream.
0: For those guys that you hear that never want to go back to it or had a different experience, do you know any of their backgrounds? Were you the only one with boarding school? Did that kind of set you up with the structure and the expectation and work ethic? Is that what you think the difference was?
1: I don't know. I think I'd be making a lot of assumptions to say one way or the other. You know, sometimes people just like the trendy thing. And unfortunately, I think sometimes it's trendy to say you didn't like it. And whether that's their true experience or true feeling of their time there, or whether they're just following along.
0: Do you mean from the culture that they then go into that they're posturing because the guys that are currently on would maybe say the same thing?
1: Yeah, I think that would be what I'd get at for sure. Whether boarding school had anything to do with that or not, I don't know. I think maybe rowing did a bit. Rowing is an amazing sport where I think, like many, but you sure learn to love hurting yourself by pushing yourself to that physical limit. I mean, once I stopped rowing, it took me about four years to ever sit in a rowing machine again because still, nothing to this day has made me throw up or faint more times than that machine. But <laughs> it's, it's,
0: have you got into firefighter combat? Has that been similar?
1: And you know what? I've never done it besides our physical tests for different hiring processes, whereas that's what you did. It was something I never got into. Our department doesn't have a team or anything, so it would be a full-on individual effort to uh, get involved in that. Right now, time is non-existent, but it's definitely something that I think is pretty awesome. It's something I always thought about, but nothing I've never ventured down.
0: What do you look back on from recruit class and what do you find that was useful? What do you think could have been omitted? And what do you think should have been included?
1: The pace was useful. I had a good group of TOs actually down there, most of which ended up being my captains or battalion chiefs later on through my career. Most of them were pretty good. I had some TOs I liked. One TO in particular, he's retired now, retires at BC a few years back. He was always good at giving you more when he knew you already got what he was teaching, which I liked. He was very good at assessing the student. So, you know, you're doing four weeks of pulling hose and throwing ladders and fire attack. That could be pretty monotonous if you just continue to do the exact same drill the entire time. But he would recognize, okay, this person's got this. They've done it this many times. So now I'm going to throw them this. Here's the curveball. Here's this. Or, hey, when this is happening, let's do this. And you know what? Some people weren't ready for curveball, so he held back from that. They would keep doing that same drill. That was always good. I liked having him around for that. If I remember when we were doing ventilation. For example, he'd, he'd test you on ventilation. We have these 10 steps of ventilation you have to memorize in our probationary books. He'd so give that. But if you nailed that off, then next thing you know, you'd be getting asked about Boyle's law of gases. Just being pushed to keep going. He was always one to push for, you know what, this is a school. This is good. But this isn't the end. When you master this, that doesn't mean you're done. There's a lot more which can be rare at times in the fire service. So it was nice to have that from the start from somebody. We have these terms and phrases that are kind of a funny little tradition. They're good and bad. There's 50 terms and phrases in your probationary book. And through the course of your first six months, you have to learn the definitions verbatim. Like if you say and instead of the, you're wrong. Or you miss a single punctuation, essentially. You're wrong. Oh my goodness, foam was like two paragraphs long. <laughs> and uh, and it was something you had to remember verbatim, these 50 different terms and phrases, and, and while you're in the dish pit, you'd be, hey, what's booster? What's foam? What's backdraft? And you're trying to recite these things like dishes are being thrown at you, and if you finish the dishes, they'll just make some more dirty ones until you finish. I get it. It was fun. I like the tradition of it. It's hilarious. But at the same time, it's one of those things where I think like, Man, the amount of brain power I used to remember 50 terms and phrases for a datum sure could have been used better somewhere else.
0: You guys did voluntary PT and class breakfast together?
1: Chess Street was 8 till 5, Monday to Friday. But there was a voluntary physical fitness section that happened before 8 o'clock, which everyone had to show up to <laughs> and do uh, our PT from, so the Chess Street would be open, we'd go in, we'd up and go for runs every morning and come back and be ready for class to start at eight o'clock so that was something we did all through those four weeks there but the big part of our tradition is class bonding your class you get hired with is that next level family right and part of that is when you start your time at the halls and your probation we all get broken up onto those different shifts. So we had 20 in our class, there was five of us on each of the four shifts. So we were encouraged to have breakfast after our final night shift of every set. So we could meet up and chat. How's things going? Anybody need help with this or that or hey, I want on miss call. What'd you learn from that? And just sort of a way to keep connected and chatting. So you didn't kind of get lost in the system sort of thing. You didn't get overwhelmed with your crew being on you for something or a call that went bad or something like that. You could tell it to people you knew wouldn't bring it back on you. It was like a safe space. So they really encouraged that. And it was good. It was a good way to bond. Class trips for the first little while happen every year where near the anniversary of your hire, you all go on a trip together, whether it's Whistler for the night or just out downtown for an evening and to really encourage that bond of the class. Over time, like anything, different niches go different places and different people get into groups. But those first few years having that bond was really nice. Some classes, they're all captains and BCs now 20-something years, and they've never missed anything. And they're still going on in their class trips. It's a nice bit of tradition, for sure, to keep that class bonding close.
0: Yeah, I guess it's good to know also that you may feel overwhelmed, but other people feel overwhelmed as well. So it's not just you. It's on a personal thing. Everyone's experiencing the same thing.
1: Yeah, and it was very much put on you like, that's your support group. Right from day one, these are the guys and gals that are going to get you through this. You've fallen hard times. There's 19 other people in this classroom right now that are here to help you out. And that was always pushed and encouraged on us from the get-go to deal with everything as you went. So you'd get phone calls. You know what? Hey, man, and next week they told me I've got to do a presentation on this. You got anything for me? Have you done that already? I heard you did this when you knocked it out of the park, or I heard you did this one your crew was all over you. Like, what did you say? Like, what went wrong? Like, I got to make sure I don't do the same thing. i have creating a really good support group that way.
0: And what were your rookie years like?
1: My first year was good. My first year was what I expected. I started at our 22 Hall, which is sort of central of the city. The heavy rescue squad was out of there at that point. And a pretty senior group, our specialty halls tend to be pretty senior groups because everything's done by seniority. So when you want to get into those specialties, you're only going to take the most senior members that apply. So you tend to get very senior groups of firefighters at those halls. And I had a lot of good guys on my crew there at 22, which are all lieutenants mostly now, actually, all but one of them. And the one, his nickname is The Geek first one up and last one to ever go down and he used to keep me up at night if we're not going to a fire we'll listen to somebody else's and he would have scanners going in detroit and phoenix and new york and, and we would be listening to all the different fires and talking about them as they unravel and who, who's got this who's got that i that was pretty cool to help with that keeping the passion alive especially you start with having a guy that was 15 16 years on and here he is he's so jacked on the job still but He's tuning into other people's fires, waiting for his own. That was pretty cool to see. I had some fun times there. We split our probation up into six-month stints. So our first six months is dedicated to learning that probationary textbook, learning those terms and phrases, learning your basic codes, pulls, ladder throws, stuff like that. So you drill through all that, and at the end of that six months, you head down to the training square and you're tested. You go through about an hour test of doing all those basic skills in front of training officers, getting signed off, ends of the fire attack, and then a written exam. And once you finish that, you enter your second six months where they would move you to a new hall. And then your second six months is supposed to be about, you're not allowed out of your bullpen, which it, my hall was in the apparatus base. Like if we're not doing something with you, then you're at your desk studying or you're cleaning something. And I just lived in the apparatus base cleaning stuff, studying, cleaning stuff, studying. Every seven minutes, got to be in the kitchen to pour coffee. That shift changes. Back outside, cleaning stuff, studying, working on drills. They come, they want to drill. Then we drill. We get a call, we go on a call. But otherwise, that's where I live. Your second six is meant to be. Now that you've got the basic skills down, you need to learn how to be part of the crew. That's how it was always explained to me. And for that, I ended up at number two hall in the downtown east side which was a blast. I was super excited to learn. I was going to our busy town in the city when I got told well, I was going for our second six. The place is just its own world, which was a lot of fun. First day I walked in there, my cat showed me the kitchen windows and just told me these windows are the first 3D TV. And across the street, you have the number five orange, which is one of the city's last couple stripper clubs. And then there's all the characters out on the street and they've all got nicknames. And so, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so. And it was a show. You'd see them fighting over anything and everything. And something was always happening outside that window. I just don't work there regularly anymore. But what a place. I mean, most people have heard about it now in the news, thanks to the fentanyl crisis. But it's more than just a bunch of ODs. It's just the things that happen all around that. Coming country kid. I, I didn't know bedbugs were real till I went to that hall, showing my naivety of the world. It was a big shock to my system just seeing all that because I never knew people would choose to live like that or any of that stuff would ever possibly be a situation that you could run into in a first world country. It was like something from a horror movie where you turn on the lights and the scare beetles come off the mummy and scatter into the shadows. or we are turning on the lights and this little SRL and you just saw like a wave of bugs come off this person. And I just looked back at one of the guys on my crew and said, what the heck was that? those are bed bugs don't put the kits on the floor drag them into the hallway and i just remember looking at him as i was grabbing the patient and going hold the phone bed bugs are real you're gonna tell me the boogeyman's real next? like i thought that was something your parents just said to you before you went to sleep pet crows and all sorts of stuff down
0: there tell me about ed the pet crow
1: ed the pet crow yeah that's the thing about down there it is exhausting and it beats you up but every shift you came away with some sort of story and that was one of our runs. We ended up just, as an overdose call in one of the SROs. And we get in there, open the door. The guy had been stacking all the stuff on the walls, So he was lying on the floor, but the only space there was last. And we go in, and I'm assessing them. And this was before the fentanyl crisis. We weren't carrying our cannabis time. So I'm just bagging him. And while I'm doing that, I can hear the clink, 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 clink. And I look up and there's this crow bouncing back and forth on the sprinkler pipes. That have been retrofitted below the ceiling. Of course, they put like a used soup can over the sprinkler head so the crow doesn't accidentally shut it off. And all the while, we've got this guy's neighbor in the doorway just chatting away at us, happy as can be. Oh, yeah, that's Ed, that's the pet crow. Ed's great. Chatting away all about Ed. Animal shows up. They come in and take over patient care. They want a bag, so I get up and walk out. ALS is there as well. We're waiting in the hallway to see if they need help pack or anything else. And she's still telling us about how great Ed is. And ALS guy reaches over to do something with the patient and Ed just takes a dump and it lands right on the ALS guy's head. And there's just this extreme moment of silence that hasn't stopped because the neighbor's been chatting to us the whole time and this just silence happens. Nobody knows what to do. And then my lieutenant broke the silence at that point in time and goes, Well, in 25 years, I've definitely never seen that before.
2: <laughs>
1: Followed by everyone but the last paramedic with crochet on his head, laughing their heads off. Next day, there was the guy walking down the street. Sure enough, Ed was on his shoulders. He's walking down the street, never-ending down there with weird little stories.
0: You had a lady fall through a skylight?
1: Yeah, we had a power outage one night down there that hit. A few square blocks of the downtown east side, which resulted in just complete mayhem. And we were just going all over the place for all these different things. And then we go all of a sudden for a fall. But any fall from height, we send a medic and a engine. So we went with our medic company and the engine out of two hall. So we already know it's a fall from height. So all of a sudden i thinking that somebody's jumped or falling off the outside of a house or building we pull up, everything's pitch black. We're outside this eight story building that got a three story sort of annex off to the side. So it's kind of L shaped. Everything's pitch dark. We can't see a thing, but this is the address. There's that moment of pause. And all of a sudden the door opens. Well, like he says, She's in here. So all of us are immediately kind of like, Well, what's going on? It's not in the lobby, nothing. We come around, and there's this hallway that actually goes on the lower three floor part, all the way to the ceiling with this huge 30-foot ceiling in this hallway. And the skylight's busted out, and there's a woman lying in the bottom of this hallway, all mangled up from coming through the skylight. And that was a column itself. She's all stuck in there trying to deal with that sort of trauma from that fall in this little hallway. But it turns out she locked herself out of her suite on the fourth floor of the taller tower. So she just climbed onto the roof of the other bit, up some work to then hike across the roof to just break through her own window. But she stepped on the skylight and just went plummeting straight through to the ground floor. It's just a bunch of stuff like that. Like the first place they ever saw fecal emesis. That was great. don't need to see that again. We had this old church that's still there in 320s tastings. Everyone knows what it is. And it's turned into a glass resort shelter for people. All the pews are being pulled out and it's just bunk beds. we go in there one time for an OD. And you watch into this church hall, and you could smell it before we even got close to this person, as you do with that stuff. And got up, there's this guy riding around on the top bunk, and I'm looking at the guy on the bottom bunk, and the whole time I'm thinking, smells like poo. Looks like poo, but it can't be poo. I'm pretty sure he vomited. This doesn't make sense. The guy next to him on the bottom bunk, he's covered in it, but he's still fast asleep, so he's not even moving. I'm trying to figure out how to get this guy off the bottom bunk. I still just can't figure out what on earth's going on. Well, yeah, sure enough the shows up. I give my breakdown and everything they go to assess and the driver's hanging back with the tenants working and says the driver looks like poop, but it's come from his mouth. I don't know what's going on. So oh yeah, it's Fecal emesis. I was like, Fecal what? Like, yeah. So I guess heavy coke users tend to bung up so much that they can't get out one end, so it's gotta go out the other. You get to see lots of things. There's this old Gas town building. It was all boarded up. We got called for fall there too. So we went full company response, medic engine. We showed up. We go to the back alley. The back alleys there are just littered with needles and everything else. And a bunch of people uh, in the safe injection sites right there, they're injecting this back alley behind it too. And this guy's pointing to this boarded up door. And somebody's howling inside the building. So we ripped the plywood off the window and we go to climb in ground floor is just covered in rubble. The two floors below have collapsed on the ground floor. You can see in the distance, a guy just kind of propped up in the doorway, holding himself up in this doorway. And my captain heads straight off to him as I remove the plywood a bit more to get this guy out. All I can hear is, tabernacle tabernack my leg, my leg, my leg. <laughs>
0: Turn around. My
1: captain's got him up over his shoulder already. I'm like, oh, jeez, like, it's my job, right? I'm the training guy. And so I go running off to grab this guy off my cat and I get him out. And he was a funny man. My cat and he just turns to me and goes, well, I guess we know he's not a Leafs fan.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but this guy had been in this abandoned place and found out for three days. He had a broken femur. And the only reason he started calling for help is because he finally ran out. So he couldn't self-medicate anymore. But he'd been in there for three days. Just sitting in this rubble pile after he'd fallen through the floors. Yeah, it's full of stories.
0: Another unique thing about your department is you have fireboats.
1: Yeah, we have two fireboats. We just got two brand new ones. Actually one of them was put out by guys out your way when it was coming here, it lit on fire on the trailer on the way out here, with some sort of electrical problem. So I was at a boat hall for four years after I finished my probation downtown West Side. And we ran a quint and an engine out of that hall with eight people. But if a boat call came in we'd take the rig down to the boat get on the boat and respond and that's still the model they have now though they're at some different homes they're still at six but they're also at 12 now it's a very senior program a lot of people want to be a part of that got a long wait list for people to get into it this call i ever did on that one was there's a squamish dock fire so it shows you how far they go squamish is what an hour plus drive north of here i had to take the fireboat all the way up there big timber wharf Creosote logs all lit up so they need the boat to Extinguish the flames from down below because they had no way of getting to the fire otherwise. And it ended up being up there for three days. We were actually swapping crews in and out via van. The crews would show up to our number one hall get in a van, drive up, relieve the guys on the boat, and then that crew would drive back down in the van as we would shift rotations on the boat up there for that fire until they finally got a dredger in to rip the dock apart because that was
0: the only way out of it. <laughs> You're mentioning how seniority is everything in your province.
1: Yeah, my department especially. We are a 100% seniority department, right down to all tasks, apparatus, assignment, and when you eat. Everything falls to the junior man. Anything doesn't get done, it's the junior man's fault, essentially. You cook, you eat in order of seniority, so cat eats first, ten eats second, and then work your way down, seniority, down to the most junior guy eats last. Hall assignments are delegated by seniority. Most junior guys in the toilets, and then after that, when it comes to cleaning, it sort of filters out. If there's more than one toilet, then it, the biggest toilets the most junior guys. Second biggest toilets the next junior guys, and then it kind of filters out from there. Rig assignments we don't have like driver positions as a rank or as a position. So as long as you're trained and certified as a driver, our positions on the rigs are everyone holds the same qualification. Then where you ride on the rigs, you know, simply go to the captain's in his spot, the tent's in his spot. Then you go to the most senior firm and say, where do you want to ride today? And he'll pick whether they want to be on the back of an engine or driving it or being hydrant on the engine or on the ladder, whatever they want. So, and then you work down to the last guy has no choice. But...
0: And some guys must have some favorite spots that they ride every day.
1: 100%. Unless they get told otherwise. Yeah. Guys definitely have their favorite spots for sure.
0: Tell me about Kangaroo Court.
1: Yeah, so that's back to my probation. That's a traditional thing. You don't hear about a lot of them anymore. The way the fire service is being affected by getting worried about getting fired over something or harassment or hating or whatever you want to call it. But Kangaroo Court, that was in my first six months. So I know at 22 Hall. I have had a bad set. When you're on probation, you'll go on whatever rate goes on a call. So... I had the wrong radio in my pocket from one of the other rigs when the engine got a call. So I'm trying to get that out, and I'm messing around. Anyways, I ended up forgetting a radio on the running board. And we drive off, we do this call. We come back, and I realize, oh, I forgot this radio. And I'm done. So I'll tell the cat and let him know. Go retrace our steps. We find the radio. Thank goodness it wasn't was broken or anything. But, you know, mistake number one, tick. And then our dispatch was down. It was down for like... 2 a.m. till 5 a.m. or something. Okay, I got to stay up and listen to the radio, wait for calls. And at the time, all the halls used to be filled with our own furniture. Guys would bring in furniture that was just nicer, better, fill the halls with that. That got canceled a while ago. The city supplied furniture. But we had these big leather comfy couches at 22 Hall. I'm in there, and the captain that was working that day brought his dogs in, a lab and a cocker spaniel. And they're in the TV room as well. This is the only time I'd ever been in the kitchen <laughs> so was to monitor this radio because the lieutenant slept downstairs in the kitchen area. So I couldn't sit in there because i keep him awake. And I couldn't be in the bullpen because that was out in the apparatus floor, which had doors straight into the dorm. So I couldn't keep those guys awake either. So I'm in this TV room trying to keep the TV as loud as I can, doing what I can to stay awake with these dogs. I'm a dog person. I had a dog on my lap and a dog on the ground next to me. And the lights didn't turn on when calls came on in this room. And he didn't have a speaker in it either. thing I know one of the guys is waking me up. We've got a dumpster fire. And they must have been killing themselves because I had a Cocker Spaniel on my chest and a lab on my feet on this couch. I'm in full panic mode. I couldn't have felt more terrible. Go for this call. Deal with this garbage fire. Apologizing through everything. Off we go. So fast forward a week or two. And we've had dinner. And one of the GMNGs then is to make sure everybody has change. Everyone's paid in. Make sure they get their change back for whatever they paid in for dinner. You're supposed to ask everybody for their change in seniority again. So you ask the captain first, then the lieutenant, and then work your way down on who wants change. So I ask the captain, and I go to ask the lieutenant. And as I walk up to the apparatus bay, I see the lieutenant on the other end. He's got his dress cap on, and he's got about a two-foot-long piece of black PVC pipe. There's that pause as we kind of see each other. And then he just goes into a full sprint right towards me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, uh, okay. He gets to me, tells me I'm under arrest. Next thing I know, I'm back in this TV room. I've only been in once before. And I'm sat on this little wooden chair. And my captain's now got a mop on his head, a hairdresser gown across him on top of the pool table with a desk in front of it. And they've brought every desk lamp they can find. And they have all the lights shining into my eyes. They've got a whole jury section set up and everyone's got different hats. One of my good buddies has got the press hat and a camera. He ended up taking a bunch of pictures, which he ended up sending to my wife, which she thought was hilarious. (laughs) And they gave me my defense lawyer, who of course was useless. He ended up convicting me of like 13 charges or something. One being the radio, one being the, falling asleep with the dogs on me, and then I had stuff like uh, harboring an illegal alien. At this point, we're still in struggles of getting my wife for immigration papers. It took five years in total. Having a annoying laugh, uh, was one of the other ones. Of course, every time I laughed, I was convicted of that charge one more time, so I'd get extra duct tape applied to me on this chair every time I laughed because I was proving the charges. And uh, At the end of all that, here I am with about a roll of duct tape in this chair stuck to it and uh, I was convicted of my sentence and dragged out to the backyard and they all took their turns with the fire hose on me as I'm stuck in this chair. So I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> like I said, I kept laughing, which is part of the problem. It right. seeing that, that was one of my charges. But yeah, it was funny. You don't hear much anymore. I think a lot of people are probably afraid to do it. you got to pick and choose what crowd you do that in front of or who you do it to, I guess. But
0: Well, I guess on that day, you learned a little bit about water, but Tell me about when you learned its real value in Dennis Laguerre and the normalization of deviance.
1: That's a hard one for me to do justice because Dennis, I think, describes that better than anybody else when he describes it. um, Assuming something is correct because it hasn't had a noticeably negative outcome. So the saying, well, the fire is always out. There's no fire still burning because the fire is out. Therefore, what we did was 100% correct because the fire went out. When in fact, there are other things that we could have done put the fire out faster, more efficiently, or better. But we continue to slide down the scale of gain away from those efficiencies because of what we determine is the goal. So if we determine that the goal is if the fire goes up, we've won, then technically the whole city could burn down and when there's no fuel left, the fire's out. So we've won. Right. And if we allow ourselves to continue down that road, what ends up happening is we start defining things that are as correct that aren't correct just because they haven't been enough yet. When I got on the department in 2008, the department had bought CAFS engines to run CAFS lines with the intent of running them interior. So they were in service by the time I was hired.
0: Maybe just describe what those are for people that don't know what they are.
1: Yeah, so a compressed air foam system. So we would have water in the line plus have an air compressor putting air into the line and a foam solution. The science behind it being water saving, supposedly cleans the air better, creates a better layer on top of everything to put the fire out, both to make everything more efficient. It was developed in a wildland setting, and I'm not saying calves don't have its place outside of a structure, but NIST has recently done studies that have helped to show that calves inside a structure has very little benefits operating at the same GPM as water. And that was the issue. So, in that study that NIST did, they were operating the exact same GPM of water in that system. So, there's the same amount of water flowing in there, just with the calves, there was also air and foam. Fast forward now to 2016, where we ordered 36 new trucks. So, every frontline apparatus in the department, bar one, now has the ability to have caps. Now, the big limiting factor that is on all these is you have to have certain ratios of air and water in the line to make your wet and dry calves, depending on what you want. Interior, we would want wet calves. Well, the compressors are only 200 CFM on the 08, and the brand new ones are only 150 CFM. So if you want to operate multiple lines, you still have to have that ratio, so you run out of air in the compressor. You'd need this massive compressor if you want 150 or 100 and whatever GPMs. Even if you want the industry standard of 150 for a residential, you'd need pretty much that whole compressor dedicated to that one line to get this 150 GPM. So we ended up, all of our systems are only flowing anywhere on our 08. They're flowing 90 GPM for wet, 45 for dry on our ancient recorder quarter line. On our 2016s, we had some rigs flowing as low as 30 GPM of water in the line. Yeah, the fire is always going out, and I won't say it doesn't go out fast. It was going out as quickly as others, but what wasn't happening was the BTUs, the heat, was not being taken out of the room. And what the answer from the company was, we need to continue to apply for as long as it took to extinguish after it's extinguished and keep going you would end up having foam parties, literal foam parties. I remember one fire I had in this mansion right when I first started. Still one of my favorite fires I've ever been to is this big three alarm fire. We were first in and there was already a working fire happening nearby. So less crews were showing up, meant more time for us. We ended up three bottles of fire attack inside the building with active flame for all three bottles. Like just awesome. But what resulted from this was the ground floor. You literally couldn't see the coffee tables anymore. There was that much foam. And it wasn't going anywhere. We had a fire just before we finally said, we're not using casting anymore. We were working on this building. And I came out to get another bottle. As I'm going out, you see the battalion chief trips over a hose line, falls over, you literally can't see him anymore because there's about three feet of foam on the ground. Oh, jeez. And he comes up looking like Christmas. It is crazy. But the fire in particular where this came in was we had a fire right down from our number one hall. I picked up a shift and our ladder just being tapped on a medical call. And then literally as they were like getting in the truck and the bay door was opening, the structure fire comes in about two blocks away from the hall. And there was also a train going across the tracks that cuts the city in half. So we had crews delayed from one side, our ladder was gone, and we're first into this small apartment building. It's just two floors, three apartments on each, all exterior entrance. And it's the second floor, far Charlie side, apartment and you enter off of the delta side into these suites we show up you can already see the smoke the meat you pull the hall we laid a long way for us it was like 500 feet which i know isn't that long but for city department it's a long way so our guys at the hydrant we pull up we immediately know we need a line luckily our number one hall is a battalion chief already so our captain didn't have to assume command he's just coming with me We fire attack i pulled the line i got to the top of the stairs And the flames are just already rolling down the outside of the balcony. And I looked over and there's already flame impinging on the neighboring structure. I like, holy smokes. Okay. Mask up, water coming, hit the neighboring house. The little kid's picnic set, the little tiny chairs. And that was actually on fire down on the floor in the neighbor's yard too. The heat coming off this thing, hit that quickly and then started pushing down the deck straight into this room. Fire goes out. We get to the door. The door is gone. There's just three hinges hanging and then a pile of, embers at the front door burning doors just burnt right off push into there, bedroom to one side push into that bedroom come back out push into the other room have it all knocked out and i remember handing the nozzle back to the captain to go pull ceiling and we were just cooking it was hot and back by the door the foam burns through we got fire there again we got to hit it again keep opening this line keep opening this line but the heat was going nowhere this is right after this Smith came out with the study and I was already starting to look into this stuff and researching some different waters and flows and that fire just like dawned on me like this is why water matters yeah we put the fire out right we took away the oxygen we did our fire tetrahedron and we've blanketed everything in foam so it doesn't have oxygen but it still got pretty much all of its heat and we cooked in there it wasn't till other crews finally showed up and stretched the second line into the room where we had already put this apartment out, all three rooms. Nothing was flaming anymore. It wasn't until that other line came in there to open up as well that the temperature started to drop. So that was a big thing for me that really pushed me down that road of like why water matters.
0: Well, yeah, because it matters for the people inside and for us.
1: Yeah, 100%. If you can not rid of that heat, what's the point? Right. As you know, you get into these circles anyways and you start hearing everybody talking about this stuff, right? I'm a why guy. Just telling me something black and white, I can't accept that. I never have been able to, never will. I'm like an instructor's worst nightmare because you tell me something and then I'm going to ask you 50 questions. You don't answer those 50 questions, I got another 50. And then I'm going to ask somebody else because until I know the absolute minutia of everything you've just said, I'm just going to keep asking questions. That's just how I work. So I just dove right into it. See guys talking about solid-bore nozzles. So again, it was like, well, everyone's chatting about it. Why? Why? Reach out to this person. Guys like Dennis, why are we flowing this much water? What do we need? Give me your pros and cons list. And then, okay, you've told me why you love smooth-bore. Now i got to find a guy who says he loves fogs, and i got to hear his story. Now I'm going to hear both stories. Okay, now I'm going to start playing with it myself and look back on my own experiences.
0: What am I taking away from this? Put it in context for you.
1: Yeah, that's fire for sure.
0: He responded to a hostage situation once.
1: Yeah, that was in the downtown West End. Came was a fall from height, so they dispatched us and Medic 12. We shot up to this apartment building thinking not much of anything, got our medical kits, and we're told this person's fallen onto the fourth floor balcony. It's a seven story building right down on English Bay, right at Denman and Dating, and great views from the top floors. And the first floor, four floors are kind of even and kind of pyramids in for the top three a little bit. And so they all have these bigger decks. And we get up to the first floor, and we can't get into the suite where the guy's on the balcony. We get put into the suite next to it. We've got to climb over one balcony onto the next one to get this guy. And he's fallen through the table and chairs out on this deck. And as we're dealing with him, I kind of notice he's being tied up. And then suddenly I sort of see on my peripheral all these blue flashing lights just pulling up outside the address. And I looked down over the balcony, and the ERT is showing up in full force. You've got cars literally, like, rolling to a stop. These guys are jumping up, their machine guns drawn, running towards the front door of the lobby. <laughs> I just sort of looked up at my captain and was like, what the hell have we gotten ourselves into? Right as that happens, over the radio, the captain gets told this is a hostage situation. And ambulance was just starting to pull up. And we watched ambulance turn around and drive away.
0: Yeah, thanks. We're already in here.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it was one of those situations like, oh, geez, okay. So we're there. We're dealing with this guy. Cops show up at the door to the suite and just, like, stay in here. Don't go anywhere. They're at the front door with their guns and flag jackets. We hear the door bang go off on the top floor. And this sort of thing all unfolds. Eventually we get told, okay, you can go downstairs now. And uh, we bring the patient down with us. Turns out there had been some gang-related things in the penthouse, in the top floor, where these people had all been tied up. And the one guy decided he was going to try and escape and climbed down the outside and flipped and fell onto this fourth-floor balcony to so fell about two, three floors. So we kind of got stuck in the middle of all of that. We had moved our engine at that point down to block off the end of Davy Street and put out cones, commonly for calls. We'll leave the cones for the police to help block off the roads, and they'll drop them back in the hall for us.
2: And that was probably one
1: of the most feared moments of my safety I've ever had on the job was walking back to ask the police officer if she wanted us to leave the cones about a building away from this building. And the scene's been over for a long time. She's still staring at the building. I remember walking up and I just said, hey, excuse me. Before I could finish, excuse me. She spun around, put her hand down onto her holster and has
0: her gun like halfway out of it.
1: (laughs) Just, whoa, you can have the cones.
0: A little on edge.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you feel that strongly about it, I'm out.
0: Yeah, it's more where they came from. Yeah, we're good. Are there any mentors that you want to mention and what they've meant to you and your growth?
1: I definitely think a lot of guys that probably fit that category I would hate if I called them that, but they definitely fit the bill. I've definitely had some good captains since I joined the tech rescue team. I've always encouraged me to push things a little further. Help me out. You might be a nine-year guy on the shift and be the junior guy being that, but you want to lead this drill for us. You want to teach the guys about this. Hey, I know you know a bit more about tick cameras. Maybe you can do something for us on the last night about tick cameras and showing that support, right, and pushing that stuff forward. Like Maybe you can't get new procedures brought up or looked at, but we can do that here as a crew. And supporting me that way, which has been huge for mental health. But on the outside, there's guys I talk to all the time the Dixie Firemanships guys, Michael Taylor, Andrew Pichard, Andrew Sterns definitely fits the mentor role 100%. Chief Sterns is, is an amazing guy. We first got in touch doing my RIT programs and teaching RIT. I wanted to know a little bit more about thermal imaging cameras in terms of RIT. And through social media and researching, I can see, well, Captain Stearns, he seems to know a whole lot about thermogen cameras and he's got some great stuff. I'm going to reach out to him and I just send him an email. Hey, Captain Stearns, I'm just looking for some more information on tick cameras. I do a bunch of 1407 training from my company over here in BC and just wanted to expand my knowledge on this. And I got a phone call a day later. Hey, Nathan, it's Captain Stearns. How much do you want to know? That was the first words I was. No, how much do you want to know? I don't know. How much is there to know? He's like, All right, give me your email. I'm going to open a Dropbox. We're going to start talking. Next thing I know, my Dropbox is filled to the limit. It's telling me I need to subscribe, start paying so I can put the rest of the stuff in there. <laughs> and any question I've ever had, he is all about answering it. I started signing up for all the webinars I could from him to start learning more and more about thermal engine cameras and fire science through him and learning his side of those stories and he's always been great that way. He's never not tried to answer a question and if he can't answer it then he's one of those guys He's going to send you somebody who does. But when it comes to thermal engine cameras honestly I haven't found a question he can't answer yet but... <laughs> He's phenomenal, and I know I'm not the only one that thinks the same way.
0: His name definitely makes the rounds.
1: Yeah, Andrew Brassard, we had a bunch of chats. Um, he's one of the guys that encouraged me, and I ended up going to Pensacola Beach pretty much through talking with him. And We were talking high-rise, and I was talking to a few different people about high-rise procedures and different things. And in the end, I saw that uh, Brass was going to Pensacola Beach to teach, and I just reached out to him. So I talked to about, if you've got questions about high-rises, this is the one for you. So. Next thing you know, I got the whole family packed up and we're going down to Florida for 10 days, but there are so many guys. There's a group of us several years back now, uh, Ron Burgess Jr. from uh, He runs truck floor training on Facebook and RID Ops on Instagram. He reached out. He asked me what I thought about something in terms of RID, because he would fall on my page and looking at some of the stuff. So he asked me a question. I think it was about whether we should have helmets on or off when we're packaging a firefighter for removal. And Next thing you know, Ron's added, Chad Zephyroth, who's just become part of our truck company ops, Goddrad. He's in Charlotte, and Chad loves RIT, talking RIT just like us. Now we're talking RIT a whole bunch there. All the while, uh, Fairfax County had just finished a study, and I'd been talking with James Kenny of Adapt and Overcome Training for a while, about some different RIT stuff and about the Fairfax County study that he and Rex Strickland had done and their time in the training department there. He was a natural fit to that too. So now the three of those guys are and myself have got this different chat groups where it's just anything happens, we throw it on there. What's your guys' thoughts on this? Hey, what have you guys ran into here? What do you think? Who should I talk to about this? It's not even about just RID anymore. It's just become this great group where we can just balance everything off of each other. It's it's been awesome. It's amazing social media that way and how it's connected. I have no qualms whatsoever in calling those three guys extremely good friends of mine. And I've never met them in real life.
0: It's amazing, isn't it?
1: Pretty crazy how that happens. The amount of conversations we've had and the laughs we've had. We do some video chats every now and then get together and do big video chats so we can share videos and different PowerPoints and stuff we've created with each other and talk about things. And we've got inside jokes. It seems crazy in a way that we've got inside jokes and we've never even been in the same room as each other.
0: Yeah, I just talked to Jeff Dykes about that, what we have with our social media and technology, being able to connect everybody. I mean, it's always been a massive service and a massive family, but we're a lot closer now.
1: Yeah, for sure. Everything's a double-edged sword. As long as it's used correctly, it's it's an amazing tool for that connection. It's huge. It allows that communication, that constant keeping base.
0: So you guys talk about so much, you even talk about fake palm trees in Canada. Tell me about that.
1: But yeah originally ron had named our group the Rit nerds now if you go and look at that group there groups called fake palm trees in canada so that all came about from the typical i mean here in canada as well so anytime you talk to anybody south of the 49th it's all about how we live in some frigid wasteland it's funny you want to go back to england my relatives there and my wife's family all will talk about how we've come to england for a retreat from the bad weather it's like it's colder here than it is at home but uh, they're going on, oh, you igloos can't catch fire. They just melt. They don't
0: light. Even though a lot of the upper states are more north than me.
1: Oh, yeah. And where all three of these guys live, their winters are way worse than mine. I'm lucky to see snow. Out of the four of us, I'm the only one that's ever had to put a palm tree out. Oh, they call BS on that. And the funny thing is, the day I did put a palm tree out, my buddy actually from Singapore, he was my roommate in boarding school, he was visiting... And he had come down with me downtown before a night shift. And we were hanging out downtown. He went to the beach. I went to work. And he's swimming in English Bay there when he sees a plume of smoke back on the shore. And so he comes up with his camera because he knows I'm working, thinking, oh, well, Nathan will be here. So we pull up and two idiots had dumped some gasoline on the base of this palm tree right on the beach and lit it on fire right in front of a bunch of security cameras. And so here we are, I've just pulled the booster. The fire's pretty much out on arrival, but I pull out the booster just to wet it down, whatever, doing our due diligence, right? Well, my buddy's made it up by this point to take a picture of me standing there holding the hose, looking like I'm watering a palm tree with my nameplate in full view. So he used that photo to send around to all of my old school friends to talk about how I'm just an overpaid gardener. So I sent this photo to those guys right away and he says, see, look, proof. So then immediately it became, ah, that palm tree's made of plastic, it's fake, no way, fake palm trees in Canada, it's a conspiracy. They all came back, I talked to my wife about it, she doesn't believe there could be any palm trees in Canada either, just <laughs> keep going off, it's, it's been never ending for about a year now, I actually went out and bought some fake palm trees from the dollar store, and I've got one in both of our training trailers so every time we train now I've got a palm tree somewhere in the pictures whether it's on top of the four splintered door or the top of the bailout window and we're doing it I tag all three of those guys on the palm tree every single time I can one of them even went to Bali recently and he took a picture of himself in front of a palm tree and he just sent me the picture hey I'm next door (laughs) 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 and this is an ongoing thing now
0: well, that kind of humor and inside jokes and banter—it definitely helps us get through some tough times. Have you ever experienced any physical or mental challenges due to the job?
1: This is always an interesting one for me. When it comes to physical, yeah, I blew my knee out really early on. I had to get my right knee reconstructed in my first year on the job, and I tried to hobble through it for about eight months until I was finally told no hobbling anymore. I couldn't actually straighten my right leg for eight months. I had a good 15 20 degree bend permanently in it until i got the surgery on it which was its own challenge that was eight years ago now on my right leg still smaller than my left leg the atrophy was pretty decent the mental challenges i mean we all have it if you've been on long enough you've been affected by something somewhat the variation of that effect whether it just means you come home grumpy for a day and you just need that three hours where it's like you can't do dad jokes and be happy for a little bit just like give me a sec or whether it unfortunately gets to a point where you recluse yourself from society and it becomes a bigger issue. I've certainly never had that recluse from society. Have I had the grumpy dad days? Oh, yeah, for sure. The one that probably affected me the most ever done was back when I was volunteering was my first fire fatality. It was a daytime fire, and it was just a small fire, but she had oxygen in her nose, nylon dressing gown lying in bed with her oxygen tanks that to have a cigarette, lit her bed on fire. Her son-in-law dropped a dry chem on her. Cops actually arrived before us. I was working construction in district, so I got the fire all pretty quick. There was nobody else showing up. Eventually, one other guy showed up 10 minutes later. Well, cops had already been on scene and they had put another dry chem extinguisher on her. So we show up. The fire is out the mattress had to be called outside and dealt with. But one cop is working on her on the floor, and I go in to start working. The guy that was with me, he took the mattress to go deal with that, and the other RCMP officer outside, leaving me with the one other RCMP officer working on her on the inside. And you know, dry chem makes it cough and sputter. Without going into too much detail, we finished that call, and I didn't. Yeah, again, don't really think much of it. You do it. But I, I was a vegetarian for about two months. Anytime there was cooked meat near me, I was out. There was just no way I could have eaten it. And we had no system. I mean, it takes you 10 minutes to get enough people to actually respond to something. You can imagine the infrastructure we have. That's the way it was. And it was still the early stages of even this being a thing that was talked about. Doesn't affect me anymore or anything like that, to my knowledge. I think other stressors are more. My wife definitely notices she has always been my one telling me the changes. She noticed a big change when I was at two home, dealing with that stuff constantly. Besides death, when you're down there, there's a lot of just stressors. Like, it's pretty harrowing to see people living like that day in and day out.
0: The suffering and the struggling.
1: Exactly, and what seems to be a absolutely hopeless situation that you can't have a overall positive effect on
0: and it must be a real crazy dichotomy with how rich Vancouver is. So you see both of those worlds living very close together.
1: Oh, yeah. There's one, $1. $1.8 million, 800-square-foot apartment that's just being built near the fire hall. But if you looked out the guy's window, you were looking straight into an SRO where you literally saw people shooting up inside their rooms. The overlap is bizarre. BC Hydro did their study a while back. They estimate at least 33% of the condos in the downtown core are empty. They're owned, they're just empty. And yet you've got, on the east side, where I now work, we were in a place last month, regular 1,300-square-foot, two-story home. We were in there for a medical. We counted 13 beds in the basement. People are renting these beds out for $500 a month. RVs now litter any street that doesn't have no parking signs. There's RVs parked all the way along all of them. But people that work in the city, living in them, that's just where they live. But then you've got these million-dollar apartments completely empty sitting in the downtown core. It's bizarre. It is bizarre. It's its own weird, weird thing.
0: And it doesn't seem sustainable. Like, it seems like a bit of a pressure cooker to me.
1: Yeah, it, it totally is. I don't know if not sustainable is the right word because the money's coming from outside the city, so realistically, the place could turn into a ghost town, but the money would still be here because the money's not from here.
0: I guess that's what I mean. I mean, socially, it just seems as a functioning city, it seems not sustainable that something's going to break. Yeah,
1: it's crazy when you've got people that work. How does a shop clerk or these jobs and grocery stores and stuff like that, which are needed for everyday society, who's going to work those when that means you have to live in a bunk bed with five other people in the 10 by 10 bedroom? So, it has created a very weird dynamic for sure. I mean, you talk about gentrification. Well, gentrification isn't always a good word for people, anyways, but it's kind of a weird word here because generally, gentrification in this city means that it's about to become a rich ghost town.
0: Because everything's just bought as investments and sit on it and then sell it down the way. Exactly. How did Prepare For get started?
1: Prepare For got started essentially through that need for me to always ask why. Just over the years, I've always loved training even when I got on in Vancouver I was going back and training where I volunteered any chance I got especially if they got an acquired structure they're still getting them back then I was okay I'm taking the weekend off I'm coming let's burn this thing I've always loved training always had a quest to get better improve myself for that comes from my rowing days and training 15 times a week it's something I like to do Trailing can be used as a punishment where I work, which is sad on a few levels because it should never be a punishment because we should all enjoy it. But that's never me. For me, the joke is is to punish me, they're going to do a company drill, but I'm not allowed to be involved. It it came from that. I love doing it a bunch. I still had this connection with the volunteer department, and there was a few things that happened that really got me into RIP. And around that same time, Don Abbott started to release his project, Mayday Study, which is fantastic because nobody's ever heard of that before. Uh, www.projectmayday.net it's fantastic
0: I'll add it to the resources page on the podcast website
1: it's a living document, it's updated constantly, there's now over 4,000 Maydays documented within the study just breaking it all down and so I started finding that in my studies and actually how I got on the Project Mayday was I was looking more and more into it and really trying to get my stuff up and running, 2010, NFPA 1407 was released. So that was brand new. So I'm already looking into that and I'm starting to see what is classified as what RIT training should be in this new standard. And so now I've got something to work off of. So now I'm picking away at the different things in that. And I actually it was Justin McWilliams who runs Firefighter Rescue Survey. So he's trying to document the saves because there's too many statistics about the fatalities he wants to document the stage and it is a great point point. and so he's doing a really good job with that over the years an amazing resource uh and i remember reaching out to him asking him if he had any data on RIT stuff like where we're finding down firefighters when we're going in and having to locate them he's the one that pushed me over and said you know what? i'm not doing that but here's the guy and pushed me over towards don abbott and the project mayday and it kind of all catapulted from there talking with other guys and doing stuff. And then we're talking to a captain of training at my old volunteer department is still there. And actually just went down to Olympia, Washington with him and my old deputy chief, the three of us went down to do some host training with uh Shoup, taking his basic engines costs. So we're, we're still good buddies. We're still always training together and doing what we can. And we're talking about this and how it just doesn't really exist out there and what would need to happen. And then out came the playbook. Everything just fell in this session so the fire commissioner British columbia created this thing called the playbook where they want to try and help standardize the training of all fire departments and they put these three classes of firefighter exterior interior and full service and all the criteria that needs to be met in order to be in each of these categories and in this it says you need 1407 training to be an interior firefighter well nowhere in the province at the time was teaching 1407 curriculum so it kind of all just fell in place and uh, talked to my wife and it's like well we can do this it's something we need it's something that i'm super passionate about and now the fire commissioner's come out and said everybody needs it but nobody has anywhere to get it from so next thing you know i'm building props i'd already built some anyways to just practice with my old volunteer department on different stuff i have been traveling around to different departments with different buddies just finding out what they did with different rig stuff and joining in on practices of different parts of this 1407 so I, I could do it for myself and so over time of doing all that to take off 1407 for myself it developed into me having all these resources to build these props and put everything together and bought a 20 foot by 8 foot trailer and rented that up so we could do it all and Next thing you know, we can provide 14-hour safety training with any fire hall that has a flight of stairs. So started pitching that to departments. That was back in 2015. We started that, and it's been a, a hit ever since, really. From that, we developed into other stuff, forcible entry, some pumps and pumping. It's fun. I love it. It's a way to keep that connection with the volunteer still. I still go back and train with my old department all the time, but to get out and talk to those other departments, it feels great. I'm at the point now, one department just emailed me, asked me, to double check some of their SOGs. IAFF department, NBC here, we got to teach last year. They changed the red SOGs. I looked at them, and off of it, you could see everything we talked about. It feels amazing. Talk about the importance of tools and understanding that we usually put a five-paragraph description of the pump we want, and the body type but then we just say oh yeah and five pipe poles and three halligans and a couple axes that same description needs to be put into your hand tools as is put into your pump and your truck body we're ordering a new truck i want to make sure we get the right tools what sort of wording should i put in there and to know that that change is happening is great
0: the fact that you have a passion and an intent and the intent is being received well is such a great feeling
1: oh yeah It's wonderful. We've managed to go all across the province now. We're up in the Kootenays, right in the Rocky Mountains. Last year, this year, we were up through the central interior and northern Vancouver Island. Just got back from the island the last two weekends were over there. We've got two more weekends here in October and another weekend in November. So we're uh, keeping ourselves busy with that. It's great all the time seeing it. We've had a few career captains in some of our courses that you know, they're only there because it's on shift at their hall, and oh, I'm a captain. I don't need to know this stuff, so I'm just going to hang back. And 15 minutes into it, you turn around, and they've got the halogen in their head and they're wailing away.
0: What have you integrated into your training style that you learned from others?
1: For I me, mean, I think it's sort of talking about that one teal I had in my chest street was that every student's different, and that patience is a thing, especially when you're teaching. and. Sometimes you can feed them more, and if you can, do it, because it's just going to keep fueling their passion, too. They're just doing the same thing over and over again with no input. You're going to lose them, so throw that curveball at them. Okay, you're ready for it. Here it is. Keep pushing yourself. This isn't the end. There's always more. And then being patient with other people, too, that you know they haven't got this one right now. Maybe they're just a little flustered. They start making that halogen look like it's the marching band baton. Just get them to slow down there's a time and a place to raise your voice but i always thought that that was a good motivator for those that are ready for it you can't shout at somebody that's flustered you shout at a skittish horse is it going to calm down or is it going to jump the fence and run that's something i've taken away from it is really trying to gauge those students and learning from them too you can learn all sorts from students all the time everyone comes from a different background It's something that always I thought was funny in the fire services, we get these probationers coming into our halls and some are 30 years old, 40 years old, and they start treating them like a two year old when they've just got on. And this person's got a whole life history. They might've worked in another career department for the past 10 years for all you know, and learning to take that in and comments are serious. And if students wanna try stuff, then let them try it. Even if you know it's gonna be a failure, let them try it because you telling them it's gonna be a failure, sometimes, won't sink in but if you let them try it and it doesn't work then they'll understand why a lot better again i know i'm big on the why and that's one thing i definitely learned i like to try and instill is is firefighting isn't black and white firefighting is just a whole whack of gray and that's where we work you can never say always and you can never say never it doesn't work that way so letting people explore those options and really understand the capability of a certain skill set or the capability of a certain piece of equipment allows them to be able to apply it in all the ways that it can possibly be applied. Whereas if you just say, you use this tool here, they now only know a single function of that piece of equipment, allowing them to know what that tool's capabilities are gives them way more options in the future. And I think that's huge, giving that why to the background. When I'm a student in a classroom, it's the instructor giving me the respect of being a student is giving me the why. I'm not so grand and all-knowing that I expect you just to do what I say verbatim. I'm going to give you the reasoning behind what I'm saying so you can come to the same understanding I have and understand why I'm teaching you this way.
0: What are your thoughts on the Brotherhood and the Family of the Fire Service?
1: The Brotherhood and the Fire Service can be very interesting. I don't hesitate for one second that guys would drop it a hat to help you in a family emergency. That brotherhood exists 100%. My own troubles with my wife not being able to get in this country for five years. That was eventually resolved through the union and the brotherhood because her mother was uh, terminally ill back home. And they weren't allowing her to leave the country. Well, the union got on the horn to every politician knew and next thing you know, the government's changed their mind on allowing my wife to go home to see her mother, and they didn't hesitate once in that sort of thing, and and they never do. We're also amazingly good at ripping each other apart. We love to talk trash about each other inside the four walls of the fire hall. It seems to be our best pastime. We're worse than old ladies knitting, but at the same time, when it's time for the tires to hit the pavement, nobody's gonna hesitate. 9-11 still pulls on my heartstrings even though I was in middle school when it happened. I hear about what my department did back then. They're immediately on the street raising money for members of the Font family. Almost everybody that I talked to that was on the department back then at some point went to New York to help. They are going back and forth for a long time, going to funerals, just so that people were there. Because there's so many funerals happening. All at once, the New York Fire Department asked the other departments, can you guys come and help fill out these funerals to make sure these people get the respect they deserve? Because we can't make it to every single one.
0: Mentally or physically.
1: Yeah, a bunch of guys didn't even hesitate. And they'd hang out at the firehouse just to be that guy to talk to. That's the definition of it right there, right? A bunch of people that are 5,000 plus kilometers away that you've never met before. And at the drop of the hat, it's happening. So that brotherhood is 100% real and exists. Like we were talking about before with Chad and James and... Ron, those guys, right, 100% of Brotherhood exists with those guys. And yet, what's the bond we share is we all have Facebook accounts and happen to work for fire departments. That was enough to start that friendship. I look at the volunteer of being out of that for nine years now, but I'm still going to training, training stuff with these guys. We still meet up whenever I'm over there to go have a beer or go hang out. And it's not me jumping on a practice night to teach. It's me jumping on a practice night to get my hands dirty and have fun, pull hose together, throw some ladders, talk about stuff. It definitely exists. It's not necessarily always what people think. We're not kumbaya and stuff like that all the time either. We're, we're, we're pretty ruthless with each other when we want to be.
0: You mentioned that you aren't fond of firefighters comparing what we do to going into war. And it kind of resonated with me. So talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, I'm not a big fan of comparing us to soldiers. I've never been a fan of that, and I think that comes from my rowing days with one of my coaches too. Is one of the little sort of pretend rivalries or whatever you want to call it was rugby guys versus rowing guys, right? And one thing that rugby guys always did every year was like create some video of their season, you know, as to some war movie or some Friday night football speech where they talk about Klein for every inch and mile and death and. It was always very clear. Like that's not what this is. It's insulting to all those military members to say that you out on a rugby pitch or on some sort of training ground are putting yourself at the same risk or level of exertion as a soldier. And I agree. I don't like the hero word. I don't like that every slogan is the bravest. I don't think we deserve that title. I think there are people within our organizations that do deserve that title, that have made that career grab or have done that thing that 100% we can give that title to. And it's great that they have allowed for the public to give us all that same amount of respect, even though we haven't got that same accomplishment yet necessarily. But for us to throw it about as something to allow us to beat our chest and ask for a discount to the store is a bit much.
0: Yeah, to me, it made me think of firefighter funerals and the reason why we have certain honors depending on how the person passed. Mm. If you gave the full firefighter funeral to every single person, no matter what the cause was, then it sort of diminishes those honors for the people that we would all agree, I guess there is no other way to say it, made a larger sacrifice. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, it waters it down, right?
0: Yeah, that's what I'm trying to drive at.
1: I mean, you get into some fires, and yeah, there are some scary moments at times where you think, oh, I don't have enough water, or I really hope that window doesn't blow out right now. But to compare that to somebody shooting at you or dropping bombs on you, I think is a little far-fetched. It's just not the same
0: thing. People maliciously trying to kill you with intent is different than a thing that just behaves based on physics.
1: Exactly, which we have the tools. And should hopefully have the training and the know how to mitigate. And yeah, mistakes happen all the time, 100%. That's why we have Maydays, that's why we have RIP teams, because you cannot control every single fire ground perfectly all the time. But it's a different animal than a guy who's gone out and deliberately set a bunch of booby traps for you and then is waiting with a gun putting you in his sights. I've never been a fond person of soldier analogies to hard work because hard work is hard work and hard work should be its own reward anyways and it should be its own understanding
0: there have been random calls here and there throughout fire service history of firefighters being shot at but i guess what we're trying to drive at is the overall you know every single person that's on the front lines in a war is at risk in a different way at a different level
1: i don't mean to play down the people that have done amazing grabs through crazy conditions like the guys in clackamas county last year that you had to use their own bailout systems to get the woman off the second floor like that is phenomenal and those guys get to earn that title in my mind and it's great that those guys have earned that title and they've done that and it's fantastic that they are humble enough or selfless enough to allow that title to then be broadcast over all of us as a fire service but like i say I need a discount at Walmart because I put my life on the line every day because it's like going into war off the backs of these guys who have done a phenomenal job. And yeah, one day, next shift, that could be you or I. And hopefully it has just an amazing outcome as those guys had.
0: I frame it for recruits that you've been here for five minutes and you will go out in the public and people will shower you in thanks and compliments. And you need to know where that's actually coming from and not let it go to your mind because it's about what everyone else before you has done.
1: Exactly. And I think we throw it around a little too much. 100% there are situations where I guess
0: you could say that we are in that much
1: danger with all this new active shooter trainings, but it's just not the same level in my mind. And to compare it, I think, is a huge disservice to those military members. We have our own risks, we have our own challenges, 100%, but I do not believe for one second they're comparable to an active war zone. (laughs) And I've never been in an active war zone, so technically I can't compare, but I'm guessing.
0: (laughs) It's a fair assumption. Yeah, yeah. What traditions do you think need to be continued to be honored, and what can we leave behind, if any?
1: That's a hard one for me because tradition is great in a lot of things. It's awesome to have a history. I look at some of these East Coast fire departments for a comparison where you get assigned to a hall and you stay there your whole career. And these halls are 100 year old plus. And the hall itself has developed its own culture and traditions through that that makes it unique and they have their own hall patches and it means something and it comes from a place and i think that's fantastic Um, my department there is none of that you get moved around every couple of years to a different location so it doesn't really exist here and i would love to see that i'd love to have that
0: individual
1: like unit pride of this is engine nine engine nine is known for this Or the ladder eight. That's the ladder everyone wants to be on. That's the ladder that makes the most grabs, has the most training. Like, I'd love to know, like, have a culture like that with that sort of tradition. Unfortunately, I say we don't have that because we move around periodically through our whole careers. I like the paramilitary tradition of it. I like having a resemblance of that structure. After our previous conversation here, I know that sounds kind of funny, but I was part of our honor guard for a while. I did like how we dress in our number ones, I night that presentation and the tradition that that upheld.
0: I think it really does align with what you said, because that's military, and we are paramilitary. We are non-military. Yeah. In action and in function.
1: Yeah. I like the tradition of the coffee table. I hear that from everywhere. The tradition of what that coffee table is and what it resembles I and mean, the joke always is, is if you've got a life problem, you'll get a million suggestions from the coffee table, right? The best advice comes from the coffee table, and it's true. Our last night shift was great. We ended up at the coffee table after dinner for hours. We were just busting gut, telling stories and cracking jokes, and it was fantastic. Literally in tears, just laughing so hard at the table. And that time, that shift change, where the crew—that's very much a tradition in our department still. at shift change, you are in the kitchen. That's where everyone's gonna meet, exchange everything for before the shift changes over and grab the people for our positions before we leave. And it's just a buzz. In the morning from six thirty till seven, that kitchen is a buzz. And then in the afternoon from four thirty till five thirty, it's a buzz again. And people hang out in there and you you get caught in it sometimes. You could have gone home forty minutes ago, but you, you just have fun at the coffee table. I think that's great. Sometimes you see that sliding in some crews so with some people just wanting to get home right away and stuff like that. And I get it. We all have lives and you can't ask somebody to do that. But I think that would be a really sad thing to lose is losing that time around the coffee table because it, that is a great time.
0: Let me finish off here with a few rapid fire questions. Okay. and You can expand on any of these that you want. You don't have to have short answers if they're short questions. Shared dorms or separate rooms?
1: I like to shared dorms. All of our dorms are shared. For the most part, they have like a knee wall or a row of lockers that doesn't reach the ceiling in between the beds. But again, there's conversations that kind of happen, right? Or just those little things like uh, the medic's going out again and the guy in the engine pretends to snore really loud as you go past him. So you give him a kick on the bottom of the foot. Stuff like that you'd lose, right? And those are all seem small now. But over 30 years, those little things all become bonding moments. Throwing jabs at each other and stuff like that, those are all things that can happen. And those are all bonding moments. And little stuff like that, I think, is super important. If you disappear to your room, then it's easy to disappear to your room and never be seen again. One thing that we've talked about that I think would be good for us is not individual dorms as in individuals, but apparatus-only dorms. So, like, the busier halls, like 2 Hall, where you've got 1,600 runs happening a month you would have three separate dorms, one for each apparatus, so that you're not getting up for all 1,600 runs. You're getting up just for your apparatus' runs.
0: That's a great idea, especially if you rotate trucks, Yeah, which gets us into the next one, which is uh, rotating positions or know your role and stay in your lane. I would like to stay in my lane.
1: And this comes from on my job. Nobody wants to drive for a number of different reasons. And I fit in that category. I mean, if I've got to drive, I'm going to drive, and I'm going to do to the best of my ability, and I make sure I'm on top of all that as much as I can be and always trying to learn on it but the junior person gets defunct in this driver's seat all the time because they're the last one to pick their place and it kind of messes with the roles a little bit there's some passionate drivers on our job but then they might all get grouped at one hall so there's only two driver spots but you got six passionate drivers I'd love to see them be able to actually take on that role as a position and take true pride in that position along with As much as guys bash truck and engine company and rescue company cultures, I think there are some good pros to it. We're a jack-of-all-trades system, and our ladder trucks tend to be our most junior firefighters and our most junior officers because they cross-staff them with pickup trucks to save fuel. So the pickup truck goes on all the medical runs. The senior guys tend to not want to have to drag their gear back and forth from one rig to the other and want to go on the bigger calls so they go on the engine which leaves our ladder truck, which is one of the more complicated pieces of apparatus with a junior set of crew. So again, it'd be kind of nice to see that culture that way to develop those roles. I think we'd see our firegrounds become more efficient with that, but we have the manpower that we could essentially do that. I mean, if you're running all single piece halls, it makes it a little more different. That being said, I know, again, going back to Clackamas, they run dry halls where the only thing... In the barn is a tiller or a ladder with no water on it. So they make it work. But I would like to see that defined. We have these positions, but like you say, you don't know what position you're going to be in from day to day. We do have a runner position. We do have a hydrant. They do have a rough outline of set things they're supposed to do on certain calls. But it doesn't become their position. If you know a position like that and you're assigned and given like a title, I think it helps you build that pride in something.
0: You're a master of one.
1: Yeah, and it's yours now. I know I'm on this rig. This rig does these types of calls and this type of district. Now I can master not only being a nozzleman, but now I can master this district because I'm on this track. What type of buildings do we have? What are our standpipe systems like? Are they all post-93 or are they all pre-93? And I got to start worrying about different reducing systems and even lower pressures. You can start to develop garden-style apartments, okay? A lot of the time... In this district, I know I'm going to have to stretch off the back with the two and a half. My preconnects don't work here. Like, that stuff would be developed and that pride could be made.
0: You get to wrap out certain buildings and calls, too.
1: Exactly. So I think it would be beneficial. I get the counter-argument, plain devil's advocate, that it means that some people get stuck in places they don't want to be and possibly makes boring calls and positions. And it could be bad for morale that way. And you see less people, so you know less people in the department and all that sort of stuff. I, I get all those arguments, but at the end of the day, it is still a job and our focus should be doing the job to the best of our ability. The kind of efficient in our response should outweigh getting to know everybody.
0: It sounds like all the counter reasons are about us. Yeah. Whereas knowing your role efficiently and effectively is about them.
1: Uh, exactly.
0: Crew workouts or solo?
1: I like crew workouts. We used to be big on sports in this department our sport was volleyball, and then that sports got taken away by a former chief sports had already been taken away when I got on the job and so workouts were pretty much individual some crews would try and do some team workouts when they could with different stuff um, my second six two haul the slowest time of day was between like six and eight because everybody kind of partied out and sort of was falling asleep at that point. So you got like a bit of a lull in the day. So we used to go and go for crew runs in this park near the hall in the district with our radios. And then the mayhem would ensue and we knew we weren't going to work out again. I like that. That was a thing, right? And you can push each other. You don't push each other, but you're all there together. Um, Now sports are back and that's great. Like volleyball is back as a big one. My hall has a terrible volleyball court. It's too low of a ceiling and stuff. So, but we've actually been playing handball which has been fantastic. There's people that you wouldn't have seen in the gym before now getting a sweat on. And again, it's another opportunity for cracking wise and having laughs when you do the giant swing and a miss. It adds to all that and helps with that bonding of the crew itself. I think the crew workouts is good. And it maybe isn't as good of a workout as I could get if I go in the gym and just pound out on weights and pound out on a cardio machine. What's the pros and cons? My mentality is if I can work, out, will work great. But I don't go to work and rely on work to maintain my fitness. Because we're going to go for runs. And as a junior man, you might have duties. i got to answer phones. Somebody could come into the door. I'm not going to guarantee myself that I'm getting a workout every day I go to work. Because then I'm guaranteeing myself to be disappointed yeah. on days too, which is not a good way to start your day. So if I can run to work, bike to work, then I've got my workouts in. I get something else and great. So I think having that team workout is great at the fire hall because it's, again, another
0: point of that crew bonding smooth bore or fog nozzle
1: i don't care my answer to that is i care about gallonage and low psi outlet pressures so if you're gonna have a fog have a 150 at 50 if you're gonna have a smooth bore, have a smooth bore. that's great i like both understand that if you're gonna have a fog at 150 at 50 that it's a straight stream the entire time you're interior until you're overhauling i'm not a believer in a 30 degree power fog or any of that stuff inside a building. I mean, you look at the UL studies on the effectiveness of straight stream versus solid stream on the interior fire attack, there really wasn't much difference at all between the straight stream and the solid stream. But there is a difference again, going back to like that calf and talking about that fire, is the amount of water you use does matter.
0: So maybe we call you a breakaway guy.
1: Yeah, I don't
0: mind. If you told me I've
1: got 15, 16 tips, I'm happy. You tell me I got 7 eighths, I'm happy you tell me i got a fog that's 150 at 50 great as long as you understand how to apply it and use it fantastic i'm not a fan of 150 at 100 150 at 75 what's the point you might as well go to 150 at 50 why deal with that larger nozzle reaction if you don't have to 195 i think is just an outdated nozzle that's that's hanging on for dear life for some reason it's not enough water so you hear crews backing out. We couldn't get it under control. We had to use like five lines. I love that we have a bunch of departments out there now that are running inch and three quarter lines with 95 at a Why? Well, less friction loss. What's your pump capable of? 2000 GPM at 600 PSI? Like friction loss doesn't matter to you. Why are you carrying around an extra quarter inch of water weight on every length of hose for 95 GPM? Doesn't make any sense. If you're going to run that for whatever reason you choose to run it, put it on an inch and a half line. But ultimately, up your volume. Why are you dragging around hose? And it's that understanding. It comes down to that education thing and the why. Oh, fog nozzles have too much nozzle reaction. They have more nozzle reaction than a smooth board. More nozzle reaction than the smooth board. No good, no good, no good. Well, what they forget to say is. It has more nozzle reaction than a smooth bore when flowing the same volume of water at the same tip pressure. Because I don't know how many departments I've ran into where they're like, "Oh, we're getting smooth bore tips because they have less nozzle reaction than our fog nozzles, and it'll be better for our people." And you know, well, what do you got? Well, fog nozzles, Oh, 95 GPM at 100. Well, that's only a 47 pound nozzle reaction. You're going to go a 7/8 tip great tip i love it 161 gpm 50 psi you're still going to have 62 pounds nozzle reaction though so you're still going to have the nozzle reaction by quite a significant amount it's going to be harder for your people to use and it's that lack of education i think that comes in with that i'm happy to have either i, I understand that some people are diehard fog people and some people are diehard smoothbore and, and what i'm saying is probably making both of them cringe but as long as i've got my 150 plus GPM for my residential structure fires on a high-gallonage, low-pressure nozzle, whatever it might be, I'm happy. I don't want excess nozzle reaction for no reason. I don't want to carry around extra water weight for a tiny nozzle flowing 95 GPM. Um, I'm happy with just a smooth bar. I don't need a fog for ventilation or all that stuff. I can just ventilate it with a smooth bar or any other various ways that we ventilate things. That's one of those things I always love, how emotional guys get about it. Step back and just look at the why. Why are you saying the smoothbore is better? Why are you saying this is better? Now let's look at these studies. What's happening? And we talk about penetration and all the smoothbore that way totally better penetration. You're right, 100%. But there's not a lot of residential fires where I need to shoot water 60 feet across the room because none of the rooms are 60 feet big. Do I have a favorite? I like smoothbore nozzles because they're fun to play with. I like the nozzle reaction they give. But if my department went out and bought new nozzles tomorrow and they were 150 at 50 fogs, I'd be a happy man. Yeah, that's always been one of those things. It's like when people argue, force of one tree, bevel to the door, bevel to the jam. They get to almost fisticuffs over it. And again, it's like, well, it's an inward swinging door. It doesn't matter. Outward swinging door, it's going to matter. Inward swinging, you know what? There's pros and cons to both. But it's not the end of the world, guys.
0: So continuing on with water then, two and a half inch line interior, exterior, or both? can't use for both.
1: Now, does my department believe in that? No. Our two and a half inch lines are are essentially exterior lines only. Um, Again, look at high rises. If you're working in pre-1993 standpipe situations, then two and a half really is the only way to go. So if you're going to argue that it's an exterior line only, yet you've got high rises in your district that are running those standpipe systems, well, you're going to end up running two-and-a-half-inch lines in two in order to actually get any flow. So to handcuff yourself to saying it's one or the other I think is silly. Sometimes you need more water, and that's a two-and-a-half-inch line.
0: Trucker engine?
1: We're a jack-of-all-trade department, so our trucks do the same thing as our engines. So I like our rescues, but they do the same thing as everybody else too, just with more skill sets and more tools capable of applying those skill sets. I love being on a nozzle to fire. I truly think that is one of the best places to be possible. But forcing doors and doing searches is great too. I don't know. I guess I'd end up having to say engine just because if you sent me to a fire and said you can have whatever position I want, I would say I want to be on the nozzle. So I guess that by default would make me an engine cat.
0: Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, acronyms yay or nay.
1: They have their place, but they do get overused. I know that's not a yay or nay, but and I think you need to have a backup plan with some of them because some people just don't get acronyms. So if you're going to try and use that to teach them thing, then you need something else. I think a prime example of that is when things go wrong, training LLC, they did a great little chat about calling a mayday and everyone's got their can or a cap or UNAR and all this stuff. And he's like, you know what? It's just who, what, where. Who are you, what's going on, and where are you? You don't need to make this more complicated than it is.
0: Just who, what, where. The way I put it to a colleague recently was, if you're trying to learn information and the acronym is helping you learn the information, then that's a great place to start. But once you start applying it and you start memorizing it and applying it practically and you know it, then the acronym sort of drops off and you don't need it anymore.
1: Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, maybe that's the best way to put it. They are a good place to start as a learning tool. We use the grab lives when we teach rit- when you in self rescue we use the grab lifes, which I like.
0: That was actually the one he was asking me about. So he asked me, "Do you like this or do you not?" So that's how I put it to him. So I'd like to hear your take on it.
1: I think the reason I'm bringing it up is because it's perfectly in the description you just talked about. It's a great way to start people off learning it. But really, when you break it down, a lot of the steps in that grab lifes are kind of simultaneous. Like, I can be looking at my gauge and radioing a mayday and all that stuff all at the same time. I don't have to do that step by step. But for that training aspect, so if you've got new recruits or people new to that self rescue, you can drill those steps into them and they get the reps in, like you say. Then it's like anything we do, they're just going to start doing it. I think it's a good starting place for sure. Is it realistic to somebody who has not trained on that very much and maybe is being into one class with it? Now, drop them in a mayday situation and ask them if they can remember what the I stands for and grab lives? Absolutely not. They're not going to remember that. Can you pressure it out of them in a training situation where maybe you just dropped them into the foam pit or pinned them with a mattress and now you can pressure them for that stuff? And hey, what's I mean? What's I mean? And in that training situation, you can give them that 15 seconds to pour through their brain to think it through. Then yeah, it's good. But like you say, that needs to happen a bunch of times now so that you don't need to rely on that acronym in the field. And maybe that's the best answer for it they're good training tools but not so reliable on the fire ground itself.
0: So where can people find you if they want to seek you out?
1: They can find us on Facebook at preparefor__rescue or Instagram, I believe it's the same thing. Or email me, nathan.preparefor.ca. Uh, um, I'm on Facebook myself as myself
0: and you've got a website as well
1: we have a website as well yes uh, www.preparenumber4.ca
0: awesome thanks for doing this man
1: no thank you very much that was great